Welcome back to the Cult House Podcast. I'm your host, the scholar of spite and the Saturday Night Delight, Roger Riddell. Joining me today, he is a staple of the Brooklyn music scene who has performed with bands including Appel Horse Named Death and Seventh Void. His current project is the industrial group Autopsy Club, uh, where every night can be open mic night if you want it to be. That's right. <laughs> he is Matt Brown. Hey, how you, how you doing? Hey, thanks for having me on. That's cool. Yeah. Open mic night, bring your own body. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it was funny because uh, when I was doing the initial kind of uh, research for it, for this, uh, you know, I just uh, Googled Autopsy Club and uh, the open mic night reference is like one of the first things that comes up. And I'm like, oh, that's that's like a really good like dark joke. Yeah, I love it too. It's just, and the cool thing is that at least it's one of the only things that kind of shows up. You can have a band name that everything under the sun shows up. At least that's just like one thing. So I know we'll be hearing that forever and ever, but it never gets old for me. I, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, uh, it kind of matches with that sort of uh, dark, dry sense of humor that the uh, Brooklyn metal scene has always kind of seemed to have too. Yeah, especially with the uh, the typos and uh, all those guys. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I guess uh, industrials always kind of had that that sort of sense of humor to it as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's uh, the darkness we live. Yeah, you uh, you froze there for a second. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> I hope we don't have to restart this thing. But yeah, tell me a little bit about, um, I'm a little bit familiar with the, the Brooklyn music scene, uh, you know, just from being a fan of a lot of those bands over the years. Uh, but tell me a little bit of, of your story and how you, uh, you know, got involved in that and how you've kind of uh, found yourself in a lot of these different circles. Because I know that you've been, you know, within like the typo negative circle and the life of agony circle. And uh, I think you've even been involved with like Lou Reed and Joan Jett before. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's weird. You know, uh, uh, well, growing up, I had a lot of friends in high school, junior high school, and uh, they were all a part of the Brooklyn scene. I didn't really know much about uh, the hardcore scene or what was happening in Brooklyn or the city and stuff. I was I was kind of into a lot of um, new wave industrial or like you know 80s stuff and and then of course uh classic rock when i was growing up because my my parents and my family were always into classics and then you know the grunge scene hit and the grunge scene was kind of like a a, a mishmash so to speak like there was industrial in there there was electronic there was rock and there was all kinds of stuff and so i was really into the uh alternative scene and all my friends in high school junior high school high school they were more in touch with what was going on in Brooklyn and they had their own bands and they were playing punk and playing hardcore. And they, we made, you know, I, I made friends and they would drag me to Lamore and um, I would just, you know, learn about all this stuff that I wasn't really into, but because of my friends, I got into it and uh, we had our own bands and uh, it's such a small click. It's, you just start meeting everybody. And before you know it, um, you're, you're standing, you know, you're hanging out with Kenny Hickey or you're, you know, cause we were all rehearsing in the same studios and stuff, fast lane studios, uh, ACE London studios. A lot of those bands like biohazard typo, we're all hanging out. Um, anyway, I was, um, I was really into electronic music and I was really into alternative music and rock and stuff. And, at one studio, Fastlane, um, there was a band that was starting up and it was electronic and rock and they needed a guitar player. 
and actually one of my friends was the guitar player and he left the band and they were looking for another guy and they, my name came up and I auditioned for this band and it was called Uranium 235. And, you know, that was kind of like the beginning for me getting into something a little more serious where we started touring and uh, opening up for bigger bands, Typo being one of them, Life of Agony and a whole bunch of others. And that's where I became friends with all those guys, really, uh, through playing on the road and showing up late to all these venues um, in a van that was breaking down and stuff like that and yeah i mean um but yeah it was like because and i was always really into the technical stuff uh i got into computers and recording and all those things at an early age or before or just as it was coming out and people started to use it in productions and stuff like i i was kind of like had my finger on the pulse of all that and so i was helping other guys in other bands uh with their productions um and that's also how i became tighter with a lot of people too just through working with them that way but you know like sal abrascato for instance you know he got me involved with stage handwork and i met a lot of people through that and it's just like you're, you're working alongside a lot of people and they take notice and all of a sudden your name comes up and and now I'm working for Lou Reed. You know, it's just, that's kind of how this whole thing happened for me. It's just um, one thing leads to another. AC Slade, uh, love him. We, um, we kind of came up in the same sort of scene in the city, um, playing the same places. He, he had his bands um, that were electronic and rocky and punky and um, kind of along the side, along the same circles as uranium 235 and we became friends back then and fast forward like we have mutual mutual friends and then all of a sudden they needed somebody to um help with joan jet and aces and joan jet you know it's just it's just how it goes and I, I it's hard to explain it's just be cool you know you never know what is going to happen 10 years from now your name pops up yeah, kind of uh, have always loved how everyone who has uh, these kind of interesting stories of, uh, you know, these different uh, sort of circles that they've woven in and out of, it's kind of like um, we all are just kind of like Forrest Gumping our way through all of these connections, really. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I kind of joke about the same thing. I'm like the Forrest Gump of rock and roll. Sometimes I don't even know the history of someone I've met, maybe. Uh, maybe I'm in the same room with this mega superstar and, and I, I'm kind of like dumb in that way. I don't know who everyone is and it, it kind of helps me out because I'm not nervous and I just can be normal. And all of a sudden, like I find myself working with somebody and, you know, it's like far as coming my way through it the whole time. Yeah, and uh, has it been weird seeing uh, the way that Brooklyn's kind of evolved over the last couple decades? Because like, for the last like nine years, I've lived in DC and like I think of a lot of cities in the context of the music scenes that they tend to be known for. And it's like I walk around DC and I'm just kind of thinking, this isn't the same city that produced that hardcore scene in like the 80s, you know? Absolutely. I feel the same way about Brooklyn, about New York City. I think about a lot of places, but I've seen it change around me. Nothing I remember is there anymore um and i gotta admit like i'm not very good at going out and searching for the new stuff because i know there's a, a there's a new thing i just don't know what it is because i think as you know i got older i just had to go to work and i've got my head down just working 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 and i just don't i guess i don't have the time or i don't i just don't pay attention like i used to you know but everything i know everything i knew is gone yeah 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 because i mean even when i've gone to like new york city before it's kind of like um walking around some of the neighborhoods it's just like i don't know if this is the same city where a place like cbgb's could have thrived you know yeah yeah that block is completely different yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, Coney Island High, just, you know, in St. Mark Street, that was one place we used to play a lot. That's gone. Continental, cool, cool bar. Everyone used to play, gone. Um, I can go on and on. They're all gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love how in a, in a city like that, though, um, uh, I think of like that city, uh, you know, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles, where you have, you can have like multiple different styles of, um of music thriving at the same time though you know when things are really like hitting it off where you know in new york at one point you could have like walked down the street to like several different clubs in one night and probably seen like white zombie in one place and like carnivore typo negative you know someone like that in another place and uh chromags in another place and um that's always been kind of interesting to me that you can have that much of a um, music that's in the same vein, but like also just so stylistically uh, different, both in terms of the, the overall sound and the presentation, you know? Yeah. I feel, I feel like we had a lot of extremes. Yeah. Extremely goth extremely hardcore you know you could see it all yeah was there like a lot of that uh you know did it mesh together well when uh if those bands you know kind of ended up in the same places on the same bills i feel like there was always some underlying punk element to all of that like a, a, an attitude that worked together even if the bands were completely different, I felt like the New York City scene had had an attitude. And I think that was the common thread. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, Autopsy Club just put out uh, its first single, The Oracle. Um, and uh, I've listened to it several times and it, uh, it reminds me a lot of... Um, like kind of the that 90s industrial uh style of music that um one of the first things i thought of was like this is something that i could have pictured being on like the mortal Kombat soundtrack back in like 96 you know yeah, yeah. And, uh, it really kind of like uh took me back to like that whole uh uh period in music I was always into electronic music and, and rock and being a guitar player, trying to find a way to put the two together. And there was that, that clip in the nineties where a lot of bands were doing that. And I became very influenced by that. And um, even Uranium, we were sort of like doing that type of thing. And um, yeah, it just, it's just a sound I think comes naturally for me and Abel and uh, we kind of missed it. And we're just doing, we're just doing what we do, you know, it's coming up that way uh, and it's fun. And that's really what it mat what matters at this point. It's just, it has to be fun for us and, uh, and uh, feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've really been into the whole like resurgence of industrial that's happened over the last few years too um like i don't know if you've uh if you've heard three teeth uh but they've kind of uh been like the the main band kind of driving that and uh i've been like just kind of uh looking at that in the context of like the time periods when industrial has thrived and it's always kind of like you know the early to mid 90s were kind of like 
socially and politically ambiguous and it kind of feels like we're in that same kind of space now yeah i was i i don't really have a lot to say about po politics and like what's going on in the world so much it's like I, i'm just not that guy it just yeah. so i you know lyrically speaking or or content wise it's it's more of like uh there's attitude in there and there's um you know, it's more about the sound and, and how things are um, floating along and stuff and, uh, and less about and I agree with because there was there wasn't a lot of uh, statements made at that time, although there were some industrial bands that were definitely more way more political. But uh, I just never uh, really dive into that in my own creations, you know, it's just I'm not, I'm not one to speak on those subjects so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always kind of a, uh, it's a bit of a minefield at times. <laughs> yeah. I think we've been personally, like I've been bombarded with so much of it over the last three, four or five years that I, I just, I can't anymore. You know, I gotta, I have to escape and, and music for me is an escape. So I got to go in a different direction, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it gets exhausting at a point. Cause like I'll, uh, I'll be talking to like family sometimes they're just like did you see this thing in the news i'm like no <laughs> i like work in the news during the day i don't want to engage with it outside of yeah. work <laughs> i don't want to lose friends i yeah. i love my friends you know i don't, I don't want to have like this this crazy disagreement over something i, I want to keep my friends what whatever they believe in i'm fine with that you know it's just like i love my friends i want to have friends <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh um how did uh, Autopsy Club come about? So uh, Abel, he, uh, a, a long time ago, in the 90s, you know, we were on, I was on Instant Messenger, uh, AIM, whatever, and uh, I was in Uranium, and this guy started um, writing to me, found me, asking me questions about production, about recording, about sounds and synthesis and all that and it was able and he was learning how to do it for himself and he would send me these tracks one after another little bits and pieces you know maybe a part maybe a full song and they were just getting better and better and better and you know this is 1998 i want to say 1998 around there seven eight and we just uh, stayed in touch and we we were friends this whole time and he just keep on sending me stuff and uh he's just become such a powerhouse with ideas he just sends me amazing ideas and sometimes they're really out there like i kind of have to rein it in sometimes for it to make sense for me but he's just you know he's an amazing dude and um anyway so like yeah i was in these other bands and stuff and Hell was named death seven void you know and it always took so much time between going to work making money paying the bills and spending time on those bands going on the road um me and scott um abel uh he goes by um we never really had the time to put this together and do it for real but you know life changed i i got out of these other groups and stuff i, I had to go to work i wanted some things in life like I wanted to buy a house. I wanted to have a little savings and all those things. And being in those bands, um, it took me away and I just wasn't able to save and, or, or do some life things. Um, so I got out of those bands and I did some life things. And then all of a sudden pandemic hits, all those things. And um, it just felt like the right time. It was just like, Hey, you want to, you know, make a few songs, put them out there. Um, we don't have to make a record. We don't have to get a record deal. We don't have to do any of that. We just do the best we can have fun and put it out song by song. And hopefully it'll find an audience and they'll like it. And we could just keep doing that. And um, that's kind of like it in a nutshell, like in the cliff notes of it, I guess. Yeah. We're just like having fun, making music together. And at the same time, it's like, if we're going to do it, might as well like push it a little bit and try to reach people and, and you know and see what happens that's all yeah yeah that's one of my favorite things about like uh 
the modern sort of uh, music distribution environment is that you can be like pretty much anyone now and, and figure out a platform to get whatever you want to create in front of people. And it's like instantly at that point, if they like it, they like it and they can support it. And if not, otherwise, like you don't have to have that middleman so much anymore. Um, unless you're like really trying to, and you can, you can still make that kind of deal with the devil to get that marketing arm behind it, but you don't necessarily have to have it anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, you could do a lot by yourself these days. The thing I always say is that, but then you're doing it by yourself, right? Everything, yeah. everything takes time and energy to do. So you have to weigh out if it's worth you doing it or if it's worth giving somebody a little bit for them to do it so that you don't have to. So, you know, that's what it comes down to. It's like back in the day, like record companies would develop bands and they would put time and energy into bands. I don't think, I, I don't see it anyway. Like I could be completely wrong, but uh, I don't think that's happening anymore as like it was back in the nineties. Um, I, I still think um, having a record deal though, like if you have someone that believes in you uh, could be beneficial, you have to give away something to get something. So you might give away some rights to your publishing or to, you know, stuff like that um, in order to get uh, publicity or uh, maybe a budget for some things like a video or something. Uh, so it's really a give and take thing. Um, I'm just at the point in my life where I've kind of been through that already. And I didn't really have much success. I mean, it depends on how you measure it. I, I feel like I did a lot of cool things in life and I feel proud of that, but I was never really like a household name or anything, you know, yeah. um, the projects that I was a part of never really became ultra uh, popular. Um, but nonetheless, I'm happy. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know that I would have a record deal right now um, because uh, they also want from you too. So you, you have to uh, show up and you have to sometimes or a lot of times sacrifice things in life to uh, go after that goal. And again, I, I, I've done that a whole bunch of times and I'm at the point in life where I think song by song right now and being happy and not feeling the pressure so much is a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's always good to not have that sort of uh, weight bearing down on you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, speaking of uh, some of your previous bands, uh, when you joined seventh void, uh, that band formed, if I remember correctly, like not too long after Peter still passed away. Right. Uh, actually, um, Pete was still alive. Okay. Um, it was around 2003 that I, uh, became a part of it. Um, and Johnny and Kenny were writing songs with, with, um, I'm sorry, I'm drawing blank. That's okay. I'll, I'll, We'll, we'll go back on that. But yeah, they were writing songs and um, they wanted another guitar player. And I believe Sal Abrascato was talking to Kenny and he had put my name forward and I started working with them. And we proceeded to complete writing Heaven is Gone. Uh, Kenny would come over to my house and we would bash away at ideas and make sketch up uh, sketches of the songs that were pretty complete productions and this lasted a, a while this lasted maybe three years if i think and, you know we were all working as stagehands and all working in between making paying the bills and stuff so it took a long time and then when we finally completed the record um i was so burnt out i i was like you know we got to find somebody to mix this thing uh, I can't anymore. I can't, I can't focus on this anymore. And uh, Johnny had brought up um, Vinnie Paul because um, Dime loved 
the uh, demos. I, I believe the guys went to go see Damage Plan when they came through the city and they were playing the demos that we were making in my house. They were playing, blasting them on the bus. And uh, Dime was really all over. He loved it. And uh, of course, you know, we know what happened to Dime and um, it's horrible. Um, and so like fast forward a little bit after that, uh, Vinny was like, you know, Dime really liked this. I want to put this out on the label. And we had Vinny and his engineer Sterling mix it. And, and then it came out there, but Pete was alive. We actually did the last typo negative tour, typo seven void, uh, before Pete had passed away. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I always have that, that like time period kind of, uh, mixed up because there was like so much that went on I, so i was a, a huge typo negative fan and uh um i just remember that time period being when i think kenny and johnny were also playing for danzig like off and on mm -hmm. and uh um i guess that would have been around the time that like pete had like gone to rikers and uh to the hospital and there was that hoax on their website for a little bit where they put like the picture of a grave that had like Peter still free at last. <laughs> and uh... I remember, I remember when, when Kenny was playing guitar with in Danzig. And at that time we were still, we were kind of wrapping up this, the uh, heaven is gone record. Like we had all these breaks in between because uh yeah, Kenny would go on tour and do that. I was working with other artists as an engineer and I would go away on tour doing us so that we had all these little breaks in between, I remember. And then when we finally did that tour with Typo, Seven Void opening, uh, Pete was, uh, he had to wear an ankle bracelet, uh, a, an anklet that had to phone home, you know, to, because like he, it was like the the pay the parole thing you know that he was it was just such a weird time yeah yeah I, uh, I was lucky enough to catch them on the tour right before that one um in like spring of 07 and saw them on uh april fool's day in cincinnati uh so typo negative and april fool's day was uh, a hell of a combination <laughs> it's like the chicken dance thing uh just kind of trolling the crowd with the applause lights and all of that until the crowd like complied. And then they finally turned off the chicken dance music and played, but it was a good, like 25 minutes of chicken dance. <laughs> yeah. I like when Pete would count, count off the beginning of the set and then say good night and walk off. <laughs> right the beginning of the set, uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, uh... no one's going to, there's no, there's never going to be another Pete deal never yeah i mean the the thing that always sticks out in my head is uh on origin of the feces at the beginning like that whole lead in to i know you're fucking someone else uh he has the the fake stage banter for the fake live crowd that they have on that uh that album he's just like 15 dollars. you paid 15 american dollars to get in here <laughs> so who sucks <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like he did that every night. Like he just, he was so <laughs> witty and off the cuff. I, I I can never be like that. Like he was always someone to look up to because he was just so quick with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, the, the seventh void record though, uh, heaven is gone. Like I loved that album when it came out and, uh, uh, I don't know how I had the timeline mixed up on that, but, uh, I always thought that Kenny's voice was really underrated. Yeah. Kenny, you know, it's funny. Like, um, these are my heroes, you know, as with, I think a lot of people, but like growing up, these were my heroes. And um, I never realized that Kenny sang as much as he did um, on those records until like we started working together. Um, and then I recognized his voice, obviously, you know, uh, but Kenny, his range is really good. He good, he can go really high. Um, and he worked at that, you know, over the years. And, and I think he, he even got better when he started singing at, as a front man for seven void. Yeah. He went through a lot of stuff to get there though. He had like, um, like nasal passage type, uh, surgery and stuff 
um, he was, he was irritating him and he was getting massive headaches. Um, so he went, he went through a lot, but yeah, he's one hell of a singer. Johnny too. Like he's just, uh, underrated as a drummer in my opinion. Yeah. Johnny's just a solid drummer. Yeah. He's yeah, just like I, a good meat and potatoes, dude. Yeah. He's, he, and you know, we always get along. We always got along. Um, when we were jamming together, it's just, he's easy to read. He's easy to jam with. He's, he, he just lays it down. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of, um, also just, uh, Brooklyn music scene staples. Uh, so in the, the typo negative videos, they have their, uh, I guess their sort of tour manager Slitzy. And, mm. uh, that's a name that I've seen kind of appear in uh, liner notes over the years for Brooklyn bands. Yeah. Um, how do you know like uh how he kind of like kind of uh got intertwined with everyone too i i mean i can't tell you the the actual story of how it all happened jeremy you're talking about yeah yeah because he's just like a he's a character on all those typo dvds <laughs> jeremy is the character he always was and he always will be he's a lighting designer and uh jeremy knows how to stir the pot and he he's just pure entertainment um and i think that's part of what it's about you know for those guys they just they they needed the the entertainment and early on i'm sure he provided that in in spades you know and then he was doing the videography all that stuff and he just captures all these crazy moments and and uh slitzy jeremy is family um and uh but i i couldn't tell you all the details about you know those things you would have to ask johnny or kenny uh i'm sure they have um stories for that you can write four books about yeah <laughs> and uh back to uh autopsy club uh as you all are you know producing more music for that do you uh kind of foresee potentially uh taking that live and maybe uh doing like some limited uh kind of tour like festival stuff yeah totally i mean that could be a fun thing i actually like a lot of people i know other musicians and stuff they ask me kind of the same things and some of these guys are uh you know sort of popular and and uh really good and i always say to myself like that would be really cool to be able to have enough um material to go out and play we actually got offered opening for a, a band um not too uh, long ago and it's just way too early for that for us like i feel like uh we feel we just want to release song by song quality and try to uh get through a, like seven or eight of them before we decide to hit a stage with it you know so then we'll have enough to actually um perform something you know at length because it, it would kind of like suck to go out there and just do a song and say okay good night you know yeah i mean it's like it's still also kind of it seems like it's kind of touch and go for uh for touring and things like that at this point still too like uh i know there's been a, a handful of tours that have been able to successfully you know kind of pull things off without incident but uh there's kind of um a little bit more of like an upfront risk now as far as like with uh, the pandemic still kind of in like it's waning stages, you know, entire tours kind of getting sidetracked from one person getting sick. And then you've got all of that like headache to deal with as far as like uh, figuring out the, the losses from missed shows and uh, being stuck, you know, somewhere else being sick. Yeah. Um, I feel like right now, especially things are getting a lot better than they were in the last two years, for sure. Um, a lot of my friends are going on tour now and they seem to be having less of an issue. Uh, I know I had a lot of friends and I've seen a lot of tours cancel in the past. I work at a theater uh, um, and a lot of the shows that I was scheduled to go and work got canceled over the past two years. Now we're we back to work. As far as my theater is concerned, I'm back to work. Um, every now and then, yes, something does fall through and cancel, but it's it seems like everybody's raring to go. So 
I'd expect a lot of bands going out there. What I do know is that is so many bands are going out there. So it's oversaturated. Everybody wants to go. So uh, logistics, you know, like getting a bus, getting a van, getting a flight, all those things I think is a nightmare. Um, but I think that we're definitely way more back than we've been in the last two years right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been really stoked that the, uh, the bands that have all been, you know, out there hitting it again too, have all been, they had like two years to, to work on new material and they've pretty like consistently all of the, the stuff that I've like checked out in the last, like, especially the last year has been like some of the best stuff uh, that, that I've heard in years. Cause it's like, everyone's got that pent up energy and, and angst and frustration and everything, you know? Yeah. I, you know, so here we're in my studio. I built this over the pandemic. This, this was bare. There was nothing here. These walls, nothing, even this desk, all this stuff. I wish that this was built in the beginning of the pandemic for that reason, because all of these bands, they finally had, time to really focus on quality music making quality music yeah making quality music and uh putting having more time to focus on it um you know when you you're going to work and you've got a family you've got all these things to fix around you or whatever it is it's just i i wonder how some of these bands some of these stars come up with great stuff all the time it's hard to be that prolific or be that um creative all the time um so the last the pandemic was kind of like a mixed blessing um i wish that this was built in the beginning i would have been writing more music you know but i took that time to actually build the, the place it took that year um yeah. but i agree it's always kind of like um it's kind of fascinating to me that the bands, you know, even before the pandemic kind of had the output that they did. Cause like you said, you know, they've got all of the, just the personal stuff on top of um, if they're on like, you know, a record deal and they're in like that sort of album cycle tour cycle kind of thing. They have that kind of pressure on top of them too, on top of all the stuff they have to take care of when they get home from tour. So it, it is just kind of fascinating that um, so many bands over the years have been able to put out um consistent like quality with that and then now we're just kind of like seeing oh this is what happens when they have even more time and less pressure to really like put out their best stuff yeah and you know the industry the way it is with the you know i'm not going to get on the streaming rant and everything i think it's a necessity at this point it's like but uh you know, there's not a lot in it for the artists unless they're making money on tour or 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 um, selling merchandise or, you know, like the music at this point, it's a tool, it's a promotional tool. There's not much being made on the music itself. I mean, you have to stream millions and millions of times to make anything of it these days when it comes to the music or so nobody can get out there and be in front of people um, to play their music and make guarantee money or make merchandise money during that whole time, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a struggle. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, um, I've talked to, with other people about this before, but it, um, it really kind of seems like now the bands that are successful at a high level uh, basically have to turn themselves into, you know, a lifestyle brand almost like Kiss did, where they've got like every kind of merch under the sun and they've got a following that's willing to pay for any kind of merch that has their name on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of music out there. Um, I find it really hard to keep on top of what's new and uh, it's like a needle in the haystack sometimes. There's so much content out there and uh, if everyone has to be kissed to make, to make something of it, you know, that's, that's pretty tough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a big investment to, to just to have that catalog of merch on top of your music. Yeah. And then getting it to the venue and where is it going to, where are you going to keep that stuff? 
And uh, a lot of things that I miss about the Brooklyn scene is the is actually the studios um, because those were where everyone met up and it was kind of like the social gathering of musicians. You could you could jam for an hour with your group and walk out into the lobby and bump into, you know, the biohazard guys or the Marauder guys or the typo guys or like all the millions of local high school bands that um, you were friends with, you know, and, and Brooklyn and Lamore especially uh, gave you an opportunity, all these local, um, all of the high school bands, all the, all the kid bands gave them opportunity to open up for their heroes. You know, a lot of venues these days, you know, they don't do that. Uh, I remember one of my friend's bands opening for Deicide and it was like, Oh my God, we're opening for Diaz, you know, um, and and even like my own band, like opening for Typo Negative, was like uh, mind blowing for me back then. And and you got to give it to the Parentes at at Lamore, like they really did that for people. And Mike Ferraro over at Fastlane Studios, you know, he would he would let us stay there all night long, and I just don't know anybody that does that. Yeah. Yeah. And um actually uh when you were in a pell horse named Death, um how did you end up getting linked into that band? Because I know that you mentioned that Sal Abruscato was instrumental in a lot of the gigs that you had lined up back then. Yeah, I just threw so like in uranium days, we were opening for Life of Agony and we were going cross country. Life of Agony was playing uh Foundations Forum. Uh, this convention, um, music convention, where all these, uh, all of like the big companies would go see the band showcase. And I remember becoming friends with Sal. We we were friends before that, but that's really when we started hanging out and stuff. And, um, but, you know, Sal kind of like, uh, when he got out of uh, Life of Agony, he was looking to do something and I was jamming with uh, my friend, Billy Kelly after I had gotten out of uranium and he was looking, Sal was looking for something to do. And Billy bumped into Sal at a studio, Ace London, you know, that's what I'm saying. Like the studio was the place. And Billy had mentioned to Sal that we were doing something and Sal wanted to listen to it. And, all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, Sal's playing drums in this group that we had called Supermassive. It was kind of like a post-hardcore type thing. And uh, that was kind of short-lived. Um, uh, Billy had passed away a few years into it. And Sal got back together with uh, Life of Agony. It was like the reunion thing. It's, it's when they released that Irving Plaza live uh cd yeah around there 2002 three i want to say and then like that's when the guys in seventh void kenny johnny they wanted to get you know they needed a little guitar player and salad recommended me and it's just that's how it goes it's like one thing after another people mention stuff and uh it's kind of incestuous in a way like we were kind of like the same guys rolling around in different iterations and different projects and stuff. And then at one point, Sal wanted to, he had this music that he wanted to create and it really wasn't supposed to be a band. It was just something that he wanted to put out there. And he had asked me to help him produce and engineer it and, you know, play some guitar on it and work it, work on it. And that was Pale Horse Named Death. And so they, okay, he showed me stuff the demos and i was like yeah we really got to do this for real and you know took those demos and turned it into a record and it was just me and sal on um and hell will follow me actually you know mina had come and sang some stuff on there and we got bobby hamble to play some solos and the other solos were me and um but basically it was just like an in-house thing and it really wasn't supposed to become a band. 
and Sal kind of leaked it a little bit and put it out there and it got noticed. And before you knew it, you know, SPV was, you know, there was a record deal and all kinds of stuff. And when could you get the band together? Can you open up for monster magnet or, you know, and then we were scrambling and we were just trying to figure out, all right, who could we get in the band? And Sal had showed the music to Johnny and Kenny and Johnny was like, you know, if you need somebody, you know, I'll do it. And then we had Johnny and now we have two drummers from typo in the same band. And, um, Bobby Hamble played on the first trip with us. Um, yeah. And it just, all of a sudden it became a band and it really wasn't supposed to be. And, you know, it was like, I wasn't expecting to be the engineer, producer, guitar player, touring guitar player, and then doing the rest of it and going on tour and all that stuff. It's like, um, you know, touring's fun and stuff. And I miss it sometimes, but, you know, it also takes you away from a lot of things in life too. So, you know, at that point in my life, I don't think I was ready to do it, but then the opportunities came up and it was like, Oh, here we go again. And then before you know it, I'm on the road, like all the time. And, uh, it was fun though. Yeah. The, uh, the point about touring, uh, is interesting. Cause I had listened to not too long ago, uh, maybe about a year ago now, uh, there's an interview with Dino Cazares from Fear Factory where he was talking about uh, their whole search for a new vocalist and how he wanted to find someone who um, wasn't known, but who also uh, wasn't like some young kid who is going to get really disenchanted with touring like really fast because uh, it's it's like a whole like grueling experience that, you know, you think about it as, as someone who has never done it before. And it's like, Oh, I get to travel around and do all this cool stuff and be in this band, but it's like a lot grittier than that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's even worse now, uh, now that there's no budgets out there for up and coming bands and stuff. I mean, it was always hard but I can only imagine, I feel like it, it's harder now. Um, I, I think one of the last record deals that I was a part of, the advance money was like 10 grand, right? 10 grand, think about that. You can, you can spend 10 grand in a phone call, you yeah. know, almost. So, you know, it's really tough. Yeah, like it, it, it all sounds like fun and games until you're uh, eating cold SpaghettiOs in the back of a van uh, in a parking lot. Potato <laughs> chip sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um, oh, there's another thing that I thought of that just slipped my mind. Um, the, uh, the Brooklyn clubs, uh, I feel like I, I knew all of them uh, you know, by name back in the day, just because of typo songs too, because, you know, Lamore gets name dropped in, uh, unsuccessfully coping. And, uh, uh, I think pretty much every other club that was, you know, in that borough gets, uh, gets a name drop at some point in their music. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, right it's beach. a, <laughs> oh, yeah. Take the D train to, to Brighton beach on, um, kill you tonight. <laughs> right, right. it was the d train so that's what, that's what i remember it being the d train they change those trains all the time i mean it, it hasn't been the d train in a while i feel like but when he sung about it that's when i what i remember that train being d train yeah yeah the uh, the first time i ever visited new york i was uh i was on the d train and listening to that song and uh, i was like this is pretty cool <laughs> i feel like they took the d train though and they put it on the other side of town yeah, because it goes up through Harlem now, I think. Yeah, because like when he was talking about it, it was going Kings Highway, it was going to um, Sheepshead Bay and and Brighton Beach. Yeah, and I used to live right there. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the point that you had about uh, you know the music scene there being kind of incestuous. Uh, that's a thing that I've talked about, uh, you know, with, with friends in, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who were involved in like the punk and hardcore scene there back in like the eighties and nineties. 
and uh, with friends who've been involved in you know the Chicago metal scene from uh, bands that were around back in the 80s through the bands that have been around in the last like decade or two where uh, everyone's always just kind of passing around the same members you know like uh, Chicago has like maybe like three or four metal drummers who are in like a dozen bands <laughs> yeah yeah we definitely had that going on uh you know like when when you're in a band searching for new members um that's like a, a job in itself you know and sometimes it's just easy to go well why don't we just get so and so and it's somebody that you know for the last 20 years or whatever 15 years and it's just like this is a comfort level and there's also we want to get going we don't want to you know put the put the ad in the paper and wait for the next four months and try out people you know i think that's part of it too yeah and it's like uh you know wanky guitarists are like a dime a dozen and it's hard to find like a, a solid like drummer and bass player though yeah and with when in the case of the typo negatives uh it's hard to find people that know how to play slow yeah <laughs> as 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 um as crazy as that might sound it's actually really hard to play slow because everything you do is heard if you play something slightly too fast or too slow you hear it if you make a flub, you hear it. There's videos on YouTube. You'll hear me screw up completely at the worst possible moment because it's like the slowest picking thing. And I screwed up and it's like, wrong, <laughs> straight up wrong. That's it. There's no hiding, you know? And so, yeah, it's kind of hard to find people that can do that. And drummers, bass players, even guitar players in, in that style. And it's like, I feel like I, I grew up listening to them and touring with them and watching them. And then I was playing with them and it was kind of, uh, it was kind of like drilled into my head, I guess, how, how, how that, how they operate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot of these bands, like uh, I'm, I'm pretty good at um, understanding what it needs or, uh, what the style is and chameleon myself into those things uh autopsy club you're hearing me and abel do what we do for real like this that's just what comes out of us um this the seventh void and the pale horse named death is is those guys and me understanding what they do and applying myself chameleon myself to do that and i love that too but when I pick up a guitar and start playing or, or noodle on a keyboard or something, it, what I do doesn't come out like that. That was a combination of what they do and my production or, you know, helping them along with that. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like uh, with industrial stuff like Autopsy Club, uh, I've always found like the vocal styles on that kind of stuff harder to imitate than like a more um i guess sort of like melody driven kind of uh of musical act you know yeah you know there's there's industrial acts that the vocals are super distorted and affected and stuff and that's cool you know um but what i get off on is is understanding the melodies and the words a little bit more so i i tend not to over affect that stuff you know yeah i think even then it's more like um a lot of industrial the vocals feel more spoken than sung you know mm -hmm. yeah like it's it's weird it's like industrial has a real punk element too to it uh in in the vocals in a lot of elements really but it's almost like you don't have to be perfectly in tune as long as there's an attitude in there, uh, vocally or, or anything really, uh, musically in there, it doesn't have to be perfectly in tune. It just has to have a feeling and an attitude. And that's very much like punk to me. 
Yeah, because even with uh, with like the traditional instruments that are used, you know, in industrial, um, you know, like a guitar or a bass or whatever, uh, so much of it is like getting those to sound like anything but a guitar or a bass, uh, which is has always been one of the attractions to industrial for me. Yeah, um, as a guitar player, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to change the guitar sound into something that is unlike a guitar it's like a lot of bands that we know do that and i also don't i don't want to copy those bands even though their influences like you know for instance nine inch nails or ministry like i love those bands you know um you know trent will take a guitar and plug it directly into a fuzz box with no cabinet or anything it'll sound like buzzy mess and but it's awesome he makes it work you know and it's easy to want to do that and you know it's also hard because i i don't want it to be like oh well he's just doing a trent reznor on that you know but um but you're right like you can you can make a guitar sound like anything i think abel has this quote he says that anything can be a synth if you try hard enough or yeah. if you want to, if you want it to be yeah so you can take a guitar and plug it into a bunch of effects processing and turn it into a violin. I don't know, turn it into like a jackhammer if you wanted to. Yeah. You know, I mean, to your point too, there was that whole period in like the mid nineties where uh, a lot of bands actively tried to imitate Trent. Uh, and I think probably the most, uh, the one that always sticks out in my mind the most is Motley Crue when they did uh, generation swine in like 97 yeah, And they had a lot of tracks on that album where they were trying to be this kind of uh, semi-electronic alternative uh, rock band. And it, it sounded too much like they were trying to just like jump onto a trend uh, for the sake of remaining relevant. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, I have to go back and listen to that and, and, and keep that in mind when I listen, because when they came out with that record, I felt like when I listened to it at the time that I thought it was really good. I, whatever single was out at the time, I felt like it sounded good um, recording wise or, and the singer was really given it. Um, I wasn't a huge Motley Crue fan. I, I got to say, I did like Dr. Feel Good. You know, I thought that Mick Mars guitar sound is awesome on that. And, uh, but I wasn't really like a huge Motley fan or, or any of the like hair metal bands a fan of that stuff but i feel like motley would probably be the one on top if i were you know yeah yeah i have yeah, to go yeah. back and listen to that with that in mind though yeah yeah because that one um that the whole motley crew thing has always kind of stuck out to me as far as uh hair metal because they're like they're basically the band that everyone else that aped them kind of uh defined what hair metal was so i've always kind of like looked at them as just outside of hair metal uh because, yeah they were harder they yeah were harder yeah they had more attitude um you know when i think of hair metal i, I guess i think of like warrant or like winger or like white snake or those bands that came just before alternative music came over and demolished the whole scene, like those bands. Yeah. But Motley, Motley seemed to have stayed relevant through that because I felt like they were harder. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there is good stuff on Generation Swine. It's just like, I listen to it every now and then and I can kind of see where it's like, okay, I think Tommy Lee and Nikki Six were listening to a lot of Nine Inch Nails and were like, let's try this on our album. <laughs> I definitely have to go and listen because yeah. again, like I, when that came out, I, I guess I might've listened to the record, but it wasn't the kind of thing for me. It was, oh, let's throw it on again and again and again, and, you know, really, really um, indulge and really listen to what was going on. The really interesting album from around that period is the self-titled one from before that when John Karabi sang for them. And uh, that was like a straight on, alternative rock record that if they had released it under any other band name uh it probably would have been more successful you know maybe now that you mentioned that maybe that's the one i'm thinking of uh that 
not the next one for me. I, yeah, I just don't know the discography. Yeah. <laughs> that well. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find uh, Autopsy Club? Autopsy Club is on every streaming service you can find that you've got, you know, uh, Apple Music, uh, Spotify, um, you know, all that stuff. Pick one. It's on it. And um, Autopsy Club has a website dot uh, com. You know, you can find that on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram and all the social medias. There's a link tree and it's in the descriptions. You can find us on YouTube. Um, we released an instrumental version of the song so people can use it in their backgrounds on their videos if they'd like. And you can even make your own um, karaoke if you want. And that could be interesting. Uh, we do have a few uh, remixes coming out for, from some remix artists and they're gonna be interesting because they're styles that we don't do. There's a hardcore dance remix coming out from uh, a producer. His name is The Buckness, and he does hard style. And it's an amazing job. Um, there's a, a Seabold um, remix coming out um, and a few others coming out. And again, they're just stuff that they're styles that we don't do. So it's interesting for us to hear what other producers uh turn it into so you'll be hearing that pretty soon yeah no thanks again for taking the time to chat tonight no thanks for having me on it was really fun 